that's a new sound. Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. Today we're going to talk about bitter. What does that mean in classical music and spirits? Stay tuned to find out. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. What's up, Emily Reese? <laughs> uh, not much. Um, glad I start, to be here. I start every day with bitter. Do you? Yeah. Tell me more. Dark chocolate mm-hmm. and coffee, black okay. coffee, mm-hmm. usually. Unless I need some ghee in my coffee to get right to the veins quicker. Capillaries, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. But, I don't know, bitter isn't... Like, if I say bitter in classical music, nobody will have a clue what we're talking about, right? Mm-mm. I think because we Remember, might... it took you like six weeks to explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fair. That's fair. Bitter, of course, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll develop that as yeah. time goes here. Because it makes perfect sense in hindsight. Yeah. And bitter in like wine, but really a spe- specifically spirits is like... I think one of the best flavors in spirits and drinks. In wine, you don't ever want it to be too prevalent, um, but it can be a really fun component, or I should say compound. Um, But what we think of bitter in the drinks and food world is really quite fascinating how bitter works and why it works the way it does. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. Cool. I when I <laughs> when I was talking about Emily is you know bitter and spirits is like this this and this and is there the equivalent in classical music, meaning, and she was like, no. And I was like, no, meaning like if I tell my mom who doesn't like dark chocolate or coffee, and I'm like, mom, you know, do you want to have a bitter drink? My mom's going to think of those bitter, and she's going to be like, no. Yeah. But if I explained it to her and I had a certain drink with her, she might be like, oh, yeah, I I like that. I don't want it every, you know, every time I get a cocktail, but I can appreciate that. So I thought, is there music in the classical realm that you say, ooh, everyone, listen to this. And people are going to be like, nope. (laughs) But once you explain it to them and the intricacies involved and, you know, the composer's life perhaps, they might be like, oh, yeah, Yeah. I don't want to tune that on for four hours while I drive, but I can listen to a movement or two. Yeah. And we came up with Mahler. (laughs) (laughs) Gustav Mahler. We're both like, yeah. It couldn't be more perfect. I love Mahler. Uh, which is is so interesting because he's often compared to or set side uh, side by side to Wagner, Richard Wagner, who was older than uh, Mahler. Still, they're compared often. I I am not a fan of Wagner's music. I am uh, very fond of Mahler's music, and uh, I think it's very special. Why? So when I just mentioned, oh yeah. my gosh, if people say let's, or I say let's listen to to yeah. Mahler, why do people say no? Well, there are so many reasons. Any, there are so many reasons. First of all, one of the I think most daunting reasons uh, that turns people off from Mahler is the length of his music. You know, his shortest symphony is still more than forty five minutes long, and even then, most are more than an hour long. So, you know, when you're thinking about sitting down and listening to a piece of music for more than an hour, that's kind of a lot, a lot well, to and, ask. 
and isn't it compositionally? It's it's like putting frozen butter on toast. Like there's just a lot, <laughs> and it cuts through a lot and breaks apart in a yeah. way that for a lot of people's minds, mm-hmm. it's not like it's. I mean, it is, but it, like harmonic and like a few like one two dimensional. It's not top forty. It's just like it's brr, tends, dense. Tends to be very dense. Uh, he doesn't often write for very small ensembles, so you've got just what seems like hundreds of people up on stage, which isn't always the case. But, I mean, just thick orchestration, um, sometimes weird instruments occasionally. Uh, the the harmony changes frequently. But when I think about Mahler's music, this is one, one of the, to me, is one of the most special things about Mahler's music is when I listen to Mahler's music, it's like the music is talking. It's just like this music is trying to tell you everything that you want to know about it. It's just telling you this story, and it's almost hitting you over the head with the story. And it's almost you know what like, I mean? and like if if you if if I may, mm-hmm. like a non-cliff note version, right? It's yeah. giving it's giving <laughs> yeah. you everything. It's telling it's not you all giving the you, details, yeah, without yeah. the abbreviated yeah uh, version. That's brevity sugar. is not the soul of wit in <laughs> in Mahler's music. <laughs> Well, the flip side to wine and spirits especially, so if I if I can Please. go there. yeah. I looked up the definition of bitter just to see what comes up because I know how to explain it in yeah. wine terms, right? And the yeah. first thing that I get is the adjective, of course. Yes. And it says, having a sharp, pungent taste or smell, not sweet. Okay. That sounds legit. Right. And then when you think of Guatemalan coffee, darker roasted coffee, quite often people put a little sugar in that. Okay. You have dark chocolate. Often there's just a touch of cane sugar or agave syrup or something to make it tolerable. And we'll note as we taste through today, usually there's an element of sugar or fruit that just helps the bitterness get to our system, which is almost medicinal in nature, but I won't go there yet. Okay. We keep looking at definitions and we get of people or their feelings, angry, (laughs) hurt, or resentful. (laughs) Because of one's bad experiences or a sense of unjust treatment, negative connotations, yeah. right? So I can see why when you say bitter, maybe people don't automatically go to their tongue to think of it. They just think right. bitter doesn't sound good, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we get to the noun, it says a liquor flavored with the sharp, pungent taste of plant extracts and is used as an additive in cocktails or as a medicinal substitute to promote appetite or digestion. So then that kind of sounds like, well, now we're getting somewhere, right? So we have to think about it as a liquor. But overall, I think when we mention the word bitter, it doesn't have a positive connotation. And I I think if we say Mahler, most people don't (laughs) think of positive music. Yeah. And I think a lot of people also don't maybe know too much about Mahler. The other important thing I forgot to mention is that he writes about death a lot. So sometimes that can be a little, a bit of a turnoff, I guess, to some people. So much of his music has that as a theme or undercurrent. 
Do we want to listen to some bitter Mahler before sure. we get into and and I'm sure you'll explain to to folks why why of course it is dense. Yeah. But the beautiful elements that make it actually compositionally brilliant. Sure. So Gustav Mahler, what 1860 to 1911. He almost made it to his 51st birthday. And we're going to listen to Das Lied von der Erde, which means Song of the Earth, the Song of the Earth. And this is Mahler's way maybe of trying to cheat fate. Mahler believed in a superstition that kind of haunts some composers about not being able to live past your ninth symphony. And so after Mahler wrote his eighth symphony, he wrote this piece, which is a symphony. He just didn't want to number it as such. He called it, I can't remember exactly what he called it, a symphonic work with soloists or something, <laughs> something along those lines. And now these two, there are two soloists in this piece, which sometimes this type of singing can be a turnoff to people as well. It's operatic singing, classically trained singers. Uh, sometimes it's a man and a woman. Sometimes it's two men. It just kind of depends on, it's up, to, it's up to the conductor, really, what voices they want. And we're going to listen to the first movement, which is called The Drinking Song of Earth's Sorrow. I thought that was appropriate. I'm so appropriate. Yeah. Um, but just to give you an idea of density, I'm going to start listing the instruments in this that he scored this for. And there's a very important caveat to this as well, but I'll get to that maybe later, maybe not at all. But there is a caveat to his instrumentation. So he calls for one piccolo and three flutes. So right there, that's about twice as many flute players as you have on stage. And the third flute doubles on another piccolo. So sometimes you got two piccolos up on stage. That's weird. Three oboes, three clarinets, and two other clarinets. So five total clarinets. Uh, uh, three bassoons, four horns, that's normal. Three trumpets, eh. Three trombones, that's a lot. One tuba. Um... Bass drum, timpani, cymbals, bells, tam-tam, that's all normal. Triangle, you know, the instrument that ding-a-ling-a-ling, that's yep. very common sound in Mahler. All the bells-type sounds are really common in Mahler. Two harps, celesta, mandolin, <laughs> then all your strings, so violin, viola, cello, bass, and then two vocalists. So there's a fair number of people up on stage wow. to, to do this piece that, again, this is more than an hour long. It clocks in at about 70 minutes, but not the first movement. First movement is, yeah, usually about eight or nine minutes. Okay. So let's listen to a little bit of uh, the first movement from Das Lied von der Erde, The Drinking Song of Earth's Sorrow by Gustav Mahler, 1908. Starting light there. No. <laughs> no. One of the things I read about Mahler and hear frequently in his music is like the dissolution of, of tonality where it's like yes. obscuring a key. Yeah. And I hear right now I'm like trying to 
find what key it is. And if I didn't, if I wasn't looking at it, it'd be hard for me to pick it out. Yeah. Is that one of the elements that's happening here? Yeah. There's so much motion going on harmonically uh, that it is changing constantly. He's playing a lot with major and minor here because this person is drunk singing. And so they're happy, but they're also really sad and depressed. Like, I think those of us who have been drunk in life mm-hmm. <laughs> a time or two know how that can happen. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of play there that he's doing with the harmony, but also it is tough to find that home tonic that we call it, that mm-hmm. home center. Yeah. But it's there. It is there. That's one thing that's important to note. It is, it is there. So, and if we were to obviously, if people speak German... Mm-hmm. They would understand the words, what's yeah. going on. But if you don't, and you're able to read, you know, you're understanding, you're paying attention to the tone poem, if you will. Yeah. You could understand that this is someone that is singing a drunk version of, you know what I mean? Or no? Yeah. Uh, the person that's singing is, you know, representative of the earth's sorrow and the drunkenness of the earth's sorrow and something like that? Or is it like reading into the story or? Well, this person is basically saying, you know, the world continues even though we're here for such a short time. And while we're here, all we experience is that life's a bitch and then you die. That's basically the message of the song. Okay. So, I mean. But it sounds like when we're listening to it, it sounds like, Okay, there, there's that message that's sorrowful, right? And yes. then you've got the the thickness and the lack of tonality, but it's there, but it's hard to find. Yeah. yeah. Then is are those would you say four three to four reasons why a lot of folks hear Mahler and go, oof. Yeah. Like, I mean it's woof. it's dense just in general. I'm not just talking about the texture of the instrumentation. It's the, the everything about it is is dense. Unpacking what he was thinking about when he wrote this piece. He had just experienced three major tragedies. M- Mahler was born into a Jewish family in Bohemia. So those are two huge strikes against you in Europe in the early 20th century to be a Bohemian Jew. He was not a particularly religious person and ended up converting in part so he could get his job with the Vienna Opera. Because uh, that's another important thing. Mahler uh, made his living as a conductor. That that was his career. He composed mostly over the summer times when he wasn't conducting. Um, But he had like an abusive father, right? Yeah. And then his, you know, he Mm -hmm. was, of course, the fact that he was a Jew and, you know, one of Mm -hmm. his daughters didn't or a lot of his brothers and sisters died right most of his brothers and sisters died there were 14 children eight of them ended up dying one of them Mahler was very close to when he was a kid when he was younger his uh Gustav Mahler his little brother Ernst died and actually Mahler's first piece was an opera that Mm. he wrote about Ernst which is very sweet and he would say later in life that that was the deepest personal tragedy he ever felt was when his little brother died and he was a kid when that happened but yeah many many of his brothers and sisters died Um, like his dad and his mom and another sibling died all within a year of each other but then leading up to the composition of this piece his oldest daughter died of scarlet fever He was finally forced out of the Vienna opera conducting situation because he was sick of getting shit for being a Jew. And 
he so then he moved to the U.S. But he also after his daughter died, his wife had an episode. They had to call the doctor. The doctor checks out her. The doctor goes ahead and checks out Mahler and finds that he's got this heart defect and he's definitely going to die. So he finds all this out and he's like, "Well, shit." <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, he just he had it, he had it pretty rough in terms of he was exposed to death. I, you know, and and honestly, I think a lot of people were in that era, but uh, but for for some reason, it seems especially poignant with him, only because he ended up writing so much music about it. Well, that's it, that's what I was going to say. Was it mm-hmm. seems like a lot of other people obviously experienced that, especially during that era, but their ability to capture it on paper mm-hmm. and to make it sound the way it sounded. You know, it it really translates, whereas other people that, you know, maybe they were trying to, you know, pressure it down or they were, they just didn't want to write about that. They wanted to write about happy things or things that would sell, that were harmonic, you know. Right. Um, Right. And who knows what kind of composer he would have been had composition been his main line of work. And, you know, because for someone like Mahler, he wasn't composing to make a living. He was a conductor for it. He had a living. He had money. He didn't have to churn out compositions to make cash, you know, yeah. someone like Bartok, for instance, or any number of composers had to. Yeah. And and so I find that a, an interesting spin on his compositions as well because they're much more, for lack of a better term, self-indulgent in that way because he's literally writing for himself and his own cathartic process yeah. of dealing with these tragedies that he went through. So, I mean, and there's something about his music that literally does, it's almost like it's words. It's just that descriptive and tailored to to just tell a story. Beautiful. Yeah. Hey, let's drink. Okay. Well, we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna drink actually something that is non-alcoholic for a second to Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> to just um because I wanted to give people a quick background on tastes slash flavors, right? Yeah. So there, there are technically five flavors. Some people would say four, but there's technically a fifth. Um, we've got sour, we've got sweet, we've got salty, and then we've got um, the two, we've got umami, which is one we won't focus on much, but it's sort of like when we think of tomatoes are hard to explain, soy is hard to explain. It's a Japanese word for like good flavor intense flavor, fish sauce, things like that, that um, anchovies, you know, things that you can't really replicate with other things. And Mm. they add this sort of mmm quality. That's umami. And then the fifth is bitter. And bitter is, you know, just until recently, I would say maybe the last 10 years, hasn't really been, it for sure isn't still really respected in wine as a a good, good quality because you don't want bitter wine, but it can give you, I think it can give me an indication of what happened that year in, in terms of weather. You can think, you know, did when did they harvest, if it's too green. And, um, you know, certain oak can give, or certain wood nuances can give you some bitterness. It also, it's really hard to pair bitter wine with, with just to drink it on its own. Oh. But something that's got a touch of bitterness goes really well with charred meats when we think of bitter because some people don't drink black coffee or don't eat dark chocolate bitter is if you if you scrape off charred meat or you scrape off charred toast and just eat that and plug your nose you'll get a very good representation of what bitter is bitter is at the back of the palate unlike sugar that's at the tip of the tongue 
you know, you taste something, you go, ooh, I want to eat that berry. I want to eat that piece of chocolate. That's probably going to be high in calories as an animal. Uh, the last line of defense is bitter and a way for a plant to survive, say, in the wilderness or nature. Toxic plants to survive, they've produced a certain amount of bitter compounds so that we don't want to eat them right. or different animals don't want to eat them. And the reason why it's at the back of the palate is because it's the last line of defense before we swallow. Okay. So um, that's at least what the kind of the going theory is. I like it. I thought I would break out a tonic. Q-tonic is my favorite tonic water to have on its own or with a gin and tonic. But I wanted to pour it because it gives a... Yes. <laughs> it gives us a really good representation of just what a what bitter is without having sh a lot of sugar because Q-tonic is very low in sugar compared to like Schweppes or something else. When we measure bitterness on a scale, we measure it according to quinine. So quinine, I think it's like eight parts per million or something that is one, like bi not bittering unit. We're not talking about beer here and hops, but okay. it's like one on the bitterness scale. And then we go up from there in terms of how bitter something is, which is fascinating. Okay. So quinine, um, rem remind us what that is. Quinine is, um, is a compound that is, it fights malaria. It fought malaria back in the day. And it's found as it's a component of the chichona bark. So they isolate it from, tree. from yeah. that. Yeah. So in Chichin. Cheers. And so if you notice, it's got a little sweetness, but it's it nothing like sugary. That's all at the back. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's good. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. like, I if I ever have a tummy ache, this is what I want. And when we talked earlier about to stimulate an appetite or as a digestif, anything bitter is really going to help if people have a really fatty meal or if they've, you know, something just didn't agree with them. If they have, they don't want alcohol, just have a little bit of tonic water on ice or just straight is great. And if you don't want all that carbonation, stir it up a little bit. It's so good. It's very good. It's bitter. Dump a little gin in here. It'll be yeah, better. Exactly. <laughs> just kidding. Um, okay, so that's, that's tonic. And I wanted to, I almost started to talk about like, T2Rs and chemo reception and stuff like that. But I, I didn't want to get too far away from the fact that bitter is one of five flavors. Okay. It is, you know, it tastes like char on meat. Yeah. And it can be something that is delicious that you'll like crave when it's done in balance. Um, yes. I guess we could keep going. I could pour something else or we could talk about more Mahler. Whatever you want. Maybe maybe let's talk about more Mahler. Okay. Let's keep let's, let's keep, keep getting the dense. Going. Yeah, I mentioned I wanted to listen to a piece. Can you find it for me? Oh yeah, and we can throw it in. Yeah, because as I was you know listening to Emily always suge thankfully suggests music and you know gives me a list so I can come prepared. <laughs> and I was as I was listening to her list and I was like doing some research. I was like, wow, I really want to hear number six <laughs> in <laughs> A minor. And he didn't call it tragic, but people have put the word tragic to the piece. Mm -hmm. There are four movements. And just to speak to, Emily was saying, like, a lot of his music is long. This is for four movements. We're at 80 minutes. And this, I thought, was curious because he wrote something this dense and something this intense. Huh. And he had just, he had gotten married a little while back. He had just had his second daughter. 
So this was, he supposedly wrote this in like 1903, which was when you read about Mahler's life, like an okay time. I, I don't want to go as far as to say happy because I'm not sure, but it seemed like there were some things in his life that were okay. Yeah. For Mahler. Yeah. So I don't I'd know. Say that. Can we listen to maybe the just the first maybe 10 seconds or 12 seconds of the first and the fourth movement? Because they're both like, yeah. and I was like, good <laughs> Lord. <laughs> bitter, bitter. Like, if, if I heard that yeah. on the classical music station, I'd be like, baller. <laughs> like, it's heavy. Okay, so now yeah. let's go to number four. Yeah, Mahler six is not one of his most beloved, mm-hmm. um, but it's obviously fantastic. Um, his most loved symphony is usually thought of as his second symphony, known as the Resurrection Symphony. So yet again, the elements of death here. And his first symphony has uh, death elements to it. I mean, it's just the, the list is endless. You were going to mention, you had kind of uncovered that he wrote a piece called Kindertotenlieder, which is... Good Lord. Yeah, uh, songs about the death of children. And those were poems by a German poet that, that Mahler culled from. And the, those poems that that poet wrote were never even intended for publication. Those mm-hmm. were that poet's way of dealing with the death of his own children. So uh, that's some very personal. Um, yeah, Mahler took those and, and wrote a song cycle. Many of his symphonies also do have voice. There's choirs in, or soloists in, in, his other, in many of his other symphonic works as well, which really isn't that common. It's, it's fascinating to me that Mahler chose that way to write his music rather than an opera, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are long, drawn-out narrative works, but they're not narrative in a lot of ways, like an opera. So yeah. it's it's just this interesting choice that that he made. But well, this is where the, this is where the show is going to start to take a happier turn <laughs> because we're going to start drinking. Yes, and listening to happier Mahler. Should I um, pound to, this quinine? Please do. Or this tonic water? Yes, please do. Um, I'll pour Campari in your glass. I'll pour Chinar in my glass. Okay. These are both very popular mixers. I want Emily and I to both taste them side by side first without anything in them. And then I'm going to add just a squirt of, well, not a squirt, but I'm going to do about one part Campari and Chinar separately to three parts water. So people can taste what a 25 or soda water to taste how beautifully refreshing this is. And while I have a little knife here, I have a little lemon. We'll do a little twist. Nice. And uh, just to show how beautiful these can be. So Campari, which will be glass number one. Don't taste it yet, Emily, although I, I know you're really wanting to. <laughs> um, smell it. Campari is from Piemonte in northern Italy. And this is 
depending on where it's made, it's a slightly little bit more or less alcohol here in the States. We're right in the middle at about 24%. And it is made out of what makes it bitter is the citrus myrtifolia, which is like a interesting, very small orange that's got quite a bit of bitterness to mm. it. The coloring was from Anato back in the day. It was from like actually like beetle, like oh. a beetle. That What's rendered- Anato? Anato is like a food food coloring. Oh, okay, okay. But Anato, I think, was based off of some beetle sure, some renderings or thing. something. Yeah. yeah. Um, now it's most likely not, but some people say it still is. I don't know. I don't really care. I'll drink it anyway. I'm not a vegetarian <laughs> nor a vegan, all the things. Yeah. Also, um, cascarilla, which is a bark that's native to the Caribbean. So that that's what makes Campari bitter in like a tincture format, and it's added. It's all steeped in an alcohol Campari. In my glass, we're going to do Chinar, which Chinar is, um, it was first made by a Venetian, I want to say in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, became quite popular. Now it's it's made by, it's owned by the Campari family, but it's quite different. It's made with artichokes. Crazy. Which is one of the things that gives it its vegetal kind of like flavor and bitterness. It's brown. It's brown. Because the Campari is red, let's be clear. Let's both taste number one first. Okay. And what I love to have people compare is the sweetness level and the bitterness level and the strength. Okay. So give 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 number one a whirl. This is Campari on its own. <laughs> Pass it over. It's very bitter at the end. It's very sweet up front and then then after you mull it around for a bit. It's very bitter. Oh, but I love that. Oh, it's really good. Yeah. I think if you have a tummy ache, mm. mm. I mean, yeah. Okay, now try the chinar. Chinar. It's brown. I just can't even. It looks like coffee. It looks like weak coffee. Crazy. What, what I love, and I don't want to insinuate, I don't want to like put words in your mouth, so I won't, I, I won't, I'll wait okay. to tell you what I'm going to tell you, but. Or like flat Coca-Cola, it almost looks like too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't it have like a tea-like sweet? There's like a tea quality. Definitely. Like herbal. Mm-hmm. It's much sweeter than the Campari. Much sweeter, much less bitter. Mm-hmm. So this has less mm-hmm. alcohol too. This is about 16 and a half percent. Well, that's no fun. And you think this is less bitter than the Campari? Oh, yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah, just a little less bitter. And that allows you notice sweetness more too when mm-hmm. things are less bitter. Yeah. Bitterness can kind of mask that. So now I want to, what I'm going to do here. <laughs> I love this setup. It's fantastic. Yeah, you should see me in um, Emily's little. My little corner. Just so these are about even, evenly matched here, I'm going to do just a little squirt of, we're using La Croix original flavor. No flavoring here. And just a little. <laughs> little lemon zest. A little lemon zest. So I'm just carving a little, little very rudimentary twist of lemon yeah, here in our, yes. in our studio. <laughs> Don't want to cut myself. All right, let's taste Campari and soda first. Okay. So this is like one of my favorite things if I'm out and I've got a tummy ache, friends are drinking, and I don't really know what to drink, and I but I want something. Yeah. This is just a great way to like start out the night, and it usually makes your tummy feel better. Or, you know, you go out to dinner and everybody wants champagne to start, or they want a mm. sherry to start. I love Campari and soda. It's just so beautiful, and it's it light is. in alcohol. Very light. And the soda water just is like... I don't know. It's just really pretty and so simple. Is this a common thing to go to order? You can just say, can I have Campari and soda water? And they'll do one to three ratio kind of thing? Yeah, or one to four. 
Yeah. And you could tell them if you had a preferred ratio, you could say, you know, I kind of like it mm -hmm. one to three or one to four, because they're always okay. going to put the, a shot or, you know, their quantity of a shot. So you just, do you want it a little stronger or yeah. a little weaker? How much alcohol did you say that has? The United States version is about 24. Campari? Yeah. So now I'll give that a taste. We don't have ice in ours just to kind of taste it pure. And yeah, that's good too. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a preference? Uh, you know, I think the bitterness of the Campari makes it seem a little more refreshing. Yeah. And I think you'd need more Chinar to yeah. have a similar effect. The yeah. Chinar kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And I wasn't exact in my measurements, but yeah. they were roughly about one to three, one to four. And what we're going to do next after we listen to some pretty Mahler, um, <laughs> or let's let's just say less dense because it's all pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> we're going to make Negronis. Yes. And one is going to be made with Chinar and one is going to be made with Campari so that people can see the difference in how they react as some people would just say, oh, you know, a Negroni is a Negroni. You know, a gin and tonic's a gin and tonic. But it, I just thought, why even waste our livers on bad tonic to make yeah. us, you know, a gin and tonic to compare yeah. tonic waters? Just buy good tonic, people. Yeah. So when I go to a bar, I can say, can I have a Negroni with Chinar? Yes. Okay. And would I say, could I have a Chinar Negroni or would that be? No, that's, that. That's, they wouldn't know what that means. Okay, okay. Or if you said, you know, I love Campari and soda, but I'd love a different recommendation for a spirit. Do you have anything else? Like instead of Chinar or Campari, something else. And nowadays, usually cocktail places have. They're going to have. 30 of these yeah, bags weird of, things. Bags of bitters. And so that's, yep. yep. So that's a fun way to get to know, just mm -hmm. get you out of your, you know, your rut of Campari, which. It's a fun rut to be in. I didn't even know bitters was a thing until I started doing this show with you. So, I mean. Scores and bores. Scores and bores. <laughs> I do love the lemon with the chinar is a beautiful mm -hmm. combination. It's like the lemon with the Campari. It's almost like they don't, they don't blend, but they're great together. You know what I mean? Yep. But the chinar and the lemon blend really well. Love that. Yeah. Symphony number no. four in G major by Mahler. It's his shortest. One of his he has two short ones. This one is about 45 minutes, 50 minutes, maybe. Also has a soloist in the in the final movement. There's a soprano soloist, and she is singing as though she were a small boy uh, who is in heaven and talking about the feast that happens when you get to heaven. So yes, more death here with Symphony number no. four. Symphony number no. four is pretty great. I I just I love it. Did you listen? Did you happen to listen to the whole thing or mm -hmm. just what I did? You did. Yeah. What did you think of it? I'm so curious. <laughs> I thought it sounded like if you didn't tell someone what was the main subject, mm -hmm. I don't think they would guess death. No. You know? Oh God. No. And it's very playful. Yeah. And I so I like that about it. Um I I think if I remember right, it kind of jumped around and I like that too. Um, but I haven't, I can't say that I've heard symphony number no. four ever in its entirety, like all, yeah. all four movements. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's so. a, it's a good one to see live because of its quote unquote brevity. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I can handle sitting for that amount of time. Now, granted, I go to a two and a half hour movie I don't have much patience for someone who doesn't want to sit through an hour of Mahler, but I can also understand listener fatigue and how you're like, okay, I'm ready for a break, 
and then let's come back and hear more music. So that's one of the reasons I think Mahler 4 is a good one to go see because it's like just that sweet spot. Uh, it, it differs in instrumentation from what we were talking about in Song of the Earth. It's a little bit smaller of an ensemble. Uh, just one soloist. There's no choir. So we have also fewer... Uh, we have only one harp instead of two harps. There's no trombone and no tuba, which is unusual for a Mahler piece. There is a glockenspiel. Glockenspiel is like a little tiny set of, it looks like a little mini metal xylophone, basically. You could hold it in your lap, and it's real twinkly. And Mahler, like I said, when I was talking about triangle, all those twinkly sounds are often you hear in Mahler, triangly kind of tinkly things. Sleigh bells, another good example. So uh, those are some of the things that, that are in in this symphony. So let's listen to it. And we're going to listen to just a little bit of the first movement just so you can hear it talk to you. Yes, jump around, do that, pass that Just, yeah. So playful. I love it. Yeah, so that's, that's how it starts, uh, the fourth symphony of Gustav Mahler. It... It has an interesting section in the second movement, uh, and perhaps we should listen to it a little bit, because one of the unusual things Mahler asks for in this symphony is an out-of-tune violin. So when you see a performance of this, more often than not, the concertmaster will have two violins on stage. They'll have a violin that's tuned a full step up, mm-hmm. which is what Mahler asks for, and then they'll have their normally tuned violin. And so in this second movement, the, the, it, it creates a little bit harsher of a sound because it puts a lot of strain on the instrument to tune it up like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot harsher of kind of a me kind of sound that, that happens, which is really fascinating. Cool. But do you want to hear a little bit of yeah, it? Yeah, please. Okay. Here comes the violin. Another interesting thing about Mahler is that he would use premieres, so he'd write a symphony, or whatever the hell he was writing, premiere it, and then tirelessly rewrite it. He wouldn't necessarily change melodies or harmonies or anything like that, but he'd change the instrumentation. And so, and he did this with pretty much every piece he wrote that he heard in his lifetime. With the song, the piece that we just heard earlier, uh, Das Lied von der Erde, he did not hear that in his lifetime, so he never went back and made any changes. Hmm. So it's just kind of an interesting, you know, what would that piece sound like if he had had a couple of yeah. years to tinker with it yeah. after he heard it, you know? Hmm. I don't know. 
such an interesting guy. Are we going to listen to the, a little bit of the third movement or no? Oh, the fourth movement. Yeah, oh, yeah. no. So this is, the, this is the part with the soprano solo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so she, again, she's just singing about um, that feast in heaven. styles existed but also just the life he led and mm-hmm. context how, yeah makes for mm-hmm. a lot just like this next Negroni yes. Negronis will and just like when we talked about in our tone poem episode if anybody wants to revert back to that for a little refresher it's really interesting to if you've listened to almost all the episodes of Scores and Pours we come across that a lot where context just adds so much to the experience of Drinking something, listening mm-hmm. to something. Yeah. Emily, can you fetch some ice? I sure will. The question is, Emily Reese, do should I make two Negronis or two half Negronis? <laughs> you are barking up the wrong tree for the right answer to that question. There's a reason why we're doing this podcast together. Okay, so I'm going to... My preferred method of making a Negroni is by doing it in milliliters as opposed to ounces or parts because it can be a little bit more exact. In this case, we're using Damp Fork Gin. One of my favorite gins has a lot of orris root in it as well at what? No, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> orris root, um, and of course, juniper berries... Angelica as well. We're going to make one at a time. We'll do 50 milliliters into an empty cup of gin. And then we'll do we'll do Campari first, right? I mean, why not do Campari? Why yeah. not keep it number one? I've never yeah. made this in this small of a space and been <laughs> confined to making a cocktail. It's pretty amazing. But it's kind of great. So I'm using Campari in, right now, and I'm measuring out 30 milliliters. I probably could make a cocktail in a lot less space, to be honest. (laughs) You know, always got to travel with your measuring cup, just saying. Little tiny beaker. She's a little beaker. I have a beaker. And then we're using, we've used it on the show before, Vermut Herborista from a really cool, um, really awesome producer called Hacienda Agricola Pianora, which they're in Lombardia, northwestern Italy. We're using a mere 20 milliliters of their vermouth. It's a really beautiful, very smooth, but also a, you know, it's a vermouth, so it's got some bitterness. So this is going to be Negroni numero uno. So I get all the components in first. I'm not a classically trained bartender, so I'm not using tweezers or any weird (laughs) shit like that to pick my ice out of here. I'm just going to use two. 
So I give it a little stir. Some people say shake. I never shake my Negronis. Hmm. Got to stir this. I'm, it's, and I actually, if I were to have my proper stirring spoon, this might go a little faster, but just giving it time till it looks right, till it feels right. Smells good. Can you smell it already? Yep. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make these both, and then I'm going to add ice so that one doesn't dilute faster than the other so that we can taste the difference. I'll add citrus at the same time too. So okay. so now we're going to do, again, 50 milliliters of Damfort gin. 50? Did you say do 30 last time? No, 30 okay. milliliters of the bittering, oh. the main bittering agent. So Love it. In this next case, we're going to do chinar. So we'll do 30 milliliters of chinar. Last but not least, 20 milliliters of the Herborista, the Pianora Vermut. Yep. So I'm adding about two little ice cubes to help. So now, they're going to be strong, right? Because we they haven't really, they've had a little bit of dilution, but they haven't had too much. Just a little bit of lemon in each, preferably about the same amount. And I, I just do a twist. You could do a twist of lime, you could do a twist of orange. I, I like lemon, I just think it's really bright and they both really like it. So I'm gonna give the Campari to Emily first. Okay. Give that a little taste. Mm. And they're so different than your classic Negroni with like a really good gin, but kind of a bigger. That is strong. I know, we need more ice, it's the problem. Oh, put should this I go in. grab it? Yeah. has the Campari Negroni. Everything equal. We've added ice at the same time. We've added the same amount of a twist of lemon. Same gin, same vermouth. The only difference here is the bittering agent or the main bittering so agent. So good. Okay, so that's Campari. Bitter. Now taste Chinar. Look at the difference in color. Well, one's brown and one's red. <laughs> yeah, but you'd look at that brown and you'd never think that that's a Negroni. Right. Aren't they wow. really different? Yeah. Just because of 20 mils Amazing. of the, the bittering agent. Do you have a preference? I think it would just depend on my mood. If I wanted something sweeter, I'd get the chinar. And it seems to me right now the chinar tastes stronger. Sometimes this, to me, the sweetness in the chinar can kind of increase the perception of alcohol for my own palate, like the, the gin I'm speaking of. Yep. And because the Campari is quite a bit more bitter. Yeah. To me, it seems a little bit more of like a, I'll just say, quote unquote, harmonious beverage. I don't know. The Campari one. Correct. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. God, that's a fucking sipper. Jesus. Emily and I have never really had strong alcohol, I think, on the early hours of recording scores and pours. This is like a first yeah. gin at three. I mean, it's not a first for my world, but it's yeah, a yeah. first for scores and pours, that's <laughs> for sure. Be, yeah. Okay, well, so how do we want to recap? What, what, what do you have to say? Is your taste in this, did you, could you imagine that they could be this different? No. The Chinar, it's so funny. I keep, <laughs> I keep, what? <laughs> what? Emily Reese drinks Negronis like she drinks beer. 
It's pretty amazing. <laughs> oh, just because I'm sucking it down? Jesus. <laughs> uh, the Chinar, you know, honestly, they're both so delicious, and I can see how it would just totally depend on my mood as to which one I wanted to order. You know, I, I don't particularly have much of a sweet tooth, so I assume I would be a more of a Campari Negroni person. Except for the Rice Krispie Bar that just arrived. Well, that's a different story. Okay. But, yeah. But uh, the, the Chinar, <laughs> I can see wanting that, especially post-dinner, mm-hmm. I can see wanting a Chinar Negroni. Yes. Yeah. Or with some good jazz. Well, yep. I mean, the first time I ever had a Negroni was at a jazz show, so. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for introducing us to some very pleasant mauler. There's as well as some super dense mauler. Yep. And I think it's all contextual. We, you know, in the end, what you may think is daunting could actually be beautiful if you just give it the time of day. Sounds good to me. Give me one of those Negronis. To scores and fours. Scores and fours. For listening to this most bitter edition of Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Joe Mott, our producer Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.